Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon Thee, the heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. I thought, since my kids could be here today, I told you last week that you can learn these names and learn these events in salvation history, so I thought I would just, um, you can smile. Um, show you what you can do, and uh, not just with kids, so it's not a matter of just showing off, but what we can do as human beings, what we've been made to do. And so I thought I would let them share a little bit with you today. We're just going to begin with a little bit of what we call the Bible game, which is what I did with you guys last time. Okay. So um, how many days did it take God to create the world? Seven. Seven days. And on what day of the week did he create Adam and Eve? Um, the eighth. No. Which day? Sixth. The sixth day, that's right. And God placed him in a special place, Luciano. What place was that? Garden of Eden. And he planted two things in the Garden of Eden which were very special, Mariana. What were they called? The tree of knowledge and the tree of life. And they were not to eat of which one? The tree of knowledge. And if they ate from it, what would happen? They would die. And Luciano, how would they die? In their hearts. Yeah. And so they, what happened when they were disobedient? God uh, sent them out of paradise and said, you can't live here anymore, not until you have love in your heart for me. And so God gave them two sons, Mariana. What were their names? Cain and Abel. And what happened, Luciano? Um, Cain killed Abel. That's right. That was not good, was it? Was Abel a righteous man? Mm, yeah. And was Cain, what was, was he righteous? No. No. And so God gave them a son to replace Abel, and his name, Mariana, was? Seth, that's right. And Seth had a great, 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 great grandson, Luciano, and his name was? Abraham. No, well, yeah, it was true, yes, but no, before Abraham. He built something very special. Oh, an ark. Yeah, what was his name? Mariana, what was his name? Enoch. Well, yes, Enoch, that's right. And Enoch's great, great grandson's name was? Noah. Noah. And Noah built, Luciano? An ark. An ark. Why did God build the ark? There's going to be a flood. And why was there going to be a flood? So that all the bad people would? Die. Yeah. And God preserved Noah and his family. How many people were saved in the ark, Mariana? Eight. Eight people were saved in the ark. And Luciana, what was Noah's three sons' names? 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And which one received the blessing, Luciano? Shem. Shem received the blessing. Shem's great, 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 great grandson's name, Mariano, was? Abraham. Abraham, that's right. And Abraham's, Luciano, Abraham's son was named? Isaac. Isaac's son was named? Jacob. Jacob. And Jacob received a new name from God, didn't he, Luciano? What was his new name? Israel. Israel. And Israel had how many sons, Luciano? Twelve. Twelve sons. And Mariana, one of his youngest sons, what was his very, very favorite son he had? Joseph. Joseph. And what was his oldest son's name, Luciano? Reuben. That's right, Reuben. That's right. And which one received the blessing, Mariana? Uh, Judah. Judah, that's right. And he had another son. It was very special, and his name was? Do you remember Luciano? You've got to remember this one. Levi. Levi. And Levi had a great, 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 great grandson. His name was? Moses. Bingo. All right. All right. If they can do it, you can do it. We just did our review. I hope you were listening, and I hope that made sense to you. What we did last week, um, here's my quick review for you, that salvation history is divided into two parts between the people of God and the sons of the devil. The sons of God and the sons of the devil. And as people follow God and come into covenant union with Him, they will be blessed. And when you're blessed by God, you participate in His life. That thing is made holy. And when you receive the life of God within you, you live forever. If you walk away from God, you will be cursed. Not because God curses you, but because you have chosen to place yourself outside of the covenant union of God. Why would God allow this to happen? Because He wants us to love Him. And love is not something which is forced. It is something that is free. He will never force Himself upon us. Otherwise, our salvation will not be a salvation of a family relationship, but a master and slave. And that is not what God wants. And so as man separates himself and walks away and hides from God, he separates himself from life. As he comes into union with God and is obedient to Him, then he will live in the family of God and he will be blessed. Simple as that. Simple as that. We see the result of sin all around us. You want to talk about what biblical curses mean? Just look around you. Take a walk through Washington, D.C. someday. Verses... Biblical blessings, yes, we still live in a fallen world, but I think my children are an example of a biblical blessing. Now, there was one point that I needed to make, and I have to cover it right now. We talked about the importance of the firstborn, we talked the importance of the fatherly blessing, which we saw from God to Adam. We also saw it from Noah to Shem. We also saw it from Shem, who the tradition tells us was which person? Melchizedek. And from Melchizedek to Abraham. And Abraham receives that blessing as head of the household of God. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, it came in question form. I wish I'd answered it last time, but here it is. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, it says that Melchizedek was without origin. Okay? So I ask you, was Melchizedek God? No. No church father, no one in the history of the church, at least within orthodoxy, has ever claimed him to be God. We knew this text. What is St. Paul talking about in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3? He's talking about the priesthood of God. 
the priesthood which was given to Adam and Eve in the beginning passed down from father to son. And so just as we see the father of the family give his blessing to his son to become the head of the household, to become the king, he receives at this time in history not only the kingship but also the priesthood. And that is why when Noah gets out of the ark, the first thing we hear is that he sacrifices to God. And when Abraham comes to Melchizedek, he offers bread and wine. He is the head of the family. He is the king of Salem. And therefore, he is a priest. He is a king priest. In the beginning, the original design of God, certain men were to be ordained to offer sacrifice, but those men were to be the head of the household also. They were to be the kings of the kingdom. That only changed during the story of the Exodus, and we're going to talk about why that happened. Jesus Christ came to give us back that which we had in the beginning. He came to give us back the firstborn priesthood. And that is what St. Paul is talking about in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. You can go and read chapter 7 on your own. That's extremely important for our whole story today. To realize these heads of the households are also priests. To offer sacrifice on behalf of the family. Does that make sense? Yes. Now... We talked all about these men, all the way up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob last time. You'll remember that. In chapter 25 of Genesis, let's look at chapter 25, verse 19. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took a wife, Rebekah. Okay, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why do I live? And so she went and inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born to you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Who are the two children that we're talking about here? Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older and Jacob will take his birthright. We talked about that last time. And you're going to get that story right here in the following chapters. And just as I told you last week that oftentimes our sins follow us, who was the one encouraging, encouraging Jacob to steal his brother's birthright? His mother. His mother. And in these following chapters, you will see that as soon as he steals the birthright, he is exiled. And he's sent to Laban. He leaves his mother, and his mother will never see him again. She wanted him to become the head of the household so she could be with him. But she did it through sin, through conniving. And she lost everything she had hoped for. And in chapter 29, Jacob flees to Laban. For those that are here for the first time, what are we doing here? We're running through sacred scripture and putting things in order so that we can understand how all the stories of salvation fit together. If you missed last week, I beg you, go home and listen to it online. Now, in chapter 29, verse 26, very interesting. Jacob goes and serves for seven years for his wife, right? And you know the story. Laban kind of pulls a little trick, and he's expecting to get the one, Rachel, who he wanted, and instead he gets the sister Leah, and notice what Laban says to him in verse 26. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. 
Okay, so it's a little bit of a rub it in his face because he had stolen his birthright. He goes to Laban. He wants the younger sister. And Laban reminds him of his own sin. And so he ends up with two wives, Leah and Rachel. And from those two wives, he ends up with how many sons? All right. And in chapter 35 of Genesis, Jacob returns back to the Holy Land. And you remember... What's important about returning to the Holy Land, guys? You remember how important that city was. According to the Jews, it was the place of paradise. Paradise. Adam and Eve were exiled. Abraham was called back in. From what city? Ur of the Chaldees. Now we see Jacob exiled to the north, and he's brought back in now. And so it's this important movement in and out of covenant relationship with God. In chapter 35, verse 9, he undergoes a conversion in the story of his struggle with the angel. And he receives a new name. And his new name is? Israel. Israel. Now, we're just going to hit a couple things here just to put a couple things in order. You already know the story of the 12 sons, don't you? you know which one Jacob or Israel loves the most. His name was? Joseph. You've seen movies. You've heard stories, right? We don't need to go over that. But what I do want to point out to you about Joseph is that he's sold by his brothers in in chapter 37, and he goes into slavery, and he's sold into the house of who? Potiphar's house. And in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife becomes, uh, what, lustful after him. He refuses her because he was a righteous man. And what happens? He tries to flee from her and she takes his cloak and rips it off of him. And he flees from the place of sin naked. Okay, why is that important? I'm going to read you a text that is read in the Byzantine liturgy. There are similar texts also in the Roman tradition to show you how important when you're reading Scripture the liturgy is. Always read the Scriptures in light of the tradition of the church. We talked about that during our Dei Verbum series, didn't we? And I'm going to show you how important that is. The text says this, The serpent found a second Eve. Okay, the serpent found a second Eve. Now you're thinking back to the Garden of Eden and what happened. In the Egyptian woman, Potiphar's wife, and plotted the fall of Joseph through words of flattery. You remember, the serpent didn't go right after Adam, did he? Ah, he went after Eve, and then Eve went and brought the fruit to Adam. The serpent found a second Eve in the Egyptian woman and plotted the fall of Joseph through words of flattery. You're going to be like God. But leaving behind his garment, Joseph fled from sin, unlike Adam. He was naked, but unashamed, like Adam before the fall. Through his prayers, O Christ, Have mercy upon us. How beautiful that is. And an insight in this text. Joseph will become a type of Christ. Joseph ends up providing bread for not only Egypt, but for the whole world. It is at his name that the Egyptian people will bow their knee. 
You can see that in chapter 41 of Genesis. There are intervening chapters. There are stories about Joseph, and you know the story. His brothers end up coming, right? There's a whole famine all of the world in the Middle East, and everybody comes to Egypt because they know that Joseph has prepared the people. Remember, Pharaoh has a dream, and Joseph interprets the dream and says there will be what? Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so it's in Egypt only, in all of the world where there's food preserved. And so his brothers end up coming and begging food from their brother Joseph. And look at chapter 41, verse 40. Pharaoh says, You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only in regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Over the house is the term, in the, in the, it's a title in the ancient world called the Albayit, the one who carries the keys upon his shoulder. And what he opens, no one is allowed to shut. It is his job to open the gates of the kingdom in the morning and to close them at night. And notice what is said in verse 43. And he made him ride upon his second chariot. And they cried before him, bow the knee. Reminds us of Christ, doesn't it? And the Father. And in verse 45, And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zephaneth which means in Egyptian... Savior of the world. Joseph becomes a type of Christ. And all of these men now, all, that we, all the men we've been reading that we'll read now who are part of the covenant story of God will be these types of Christ by which God prepares us for the coming of the new Adam. They will begin to look more and more like what Adam was supposed to look like. You know the story. Sin follows us, as I said. His brothers end up coming down to Egypt with their father, Israel, and they're given the land of Goshen, a very beautiful land in Egypt. And it's there that Israel and Joseph both will die. Look at chapter 35. Because while before his brothers end up coming down to Egypt, in chapter 35, there are a number of stories that are very important to understand the genealogy to understand who will receive the family blessing. Look at chapter 35, verse 22, but don't read it. Now look, here are the 12 sons of Israel. Leah, his first wife, ends up having six children. Rachel becomes jealous and gives her maid servant, Bilhah, to her husband. Because what's wrong with Rachel? She's barren. She's barren. But of course you know when there's a barren woman in the Bible, someone's going to be born of her that's going to be very important. Okay, And so Joseph ends up being born of her. But she gives her maidservant Bilhah. She has two sons. Leah becomes jealous and gives her maidservant Zilpah and has two sons. And finally, Rachel has Joseph and Benjamin. The firstborn son, then, of Israel is Reuben. What do we know about firstborn sons? They are to become the the head of the family, right? The king of the family. They will carry on that line of the sons of God. And why is that line so important? Because from Adam to Seth to Enoch to Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the way to Jesus Christ, God is preparing for the covenant family so that in our Lord, all of that preparation of the Old Testament will come to fruition. And it's our job now to follow that line, our family line, to see who our forefathers in the faith were, to show us how to walk with God. 
And so Reuben should receive the blessing, but you remember the story of Noah and his sons. Who were his three sons? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what did Ham do? You remember? He went up to his mother's bed. Why did he do that? Because in the ancient world, to become the head of a family, to become the head of another's kingdom, I know it seems sick to us, but you take another man's wife and you have relations with her, and that shows that you have power over his house. Ham did that because he knew he wasn't going to become head of the household. Now Reuben, in chapter 35, who is going to be the head of the house, acts like a real Nimrod. <laughs> chapter 35, verse 22, While Israel dwelt in the land, Reuben went up and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. All right? Now hold on to that one. In chapter 34, I don't want you to turn there. The next two sons, Simeon and Levi, end up in a situation where one of Leah's daughters named Dinah is taken advantage of by one of the men that's living in the area. And the brothers become incensed. And so they say, you cannot have our sister. You cannot. Unless you make all of your tribe, he was one of the princes of this other tribe, unless you circumcise all of them. And so he being the prince said, no problem. <laughs> circumcise all the men. He circumcised all the men. And while it says, while they were healing, they went around and cut them down. Simeon and Levi. Who does that leave? Judah. Turn to chapter 49. There is something while you're turning there that you need to know. Added to these 12 sons are two more sons who are the sons of Joseph. While in Egypt, Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And these are important because they're going to be landowners when they come and take the land back. And when you're counting the tribes, you've got to realize that. Okay, there's some, one of the other brothers who's not going to have land. Ephraim and Manasseh. You can see the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh in chapter 48. Okay, now chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall befall you in days to come. Assemble and hear, O sons of Jacob, and hearken to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might. And the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in pride and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. O oh, my soul, come not into their counsel. O oh, my spirit, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they slay men, and in their wantonness they hamstring oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, for your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. To him shall be obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his ass's colt to the choicest vine. He washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. 
Who is that? Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy which will be more fully revealed in the prophecy of Ezekiel and also in the book of Revelation. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. I've got to add one more part of the story. We get the story of Judah in chapter 38. Judah ends up, and you can read all about it if you thought that the Bible was boring. Judah ends up accidentally having relations with his daughter-in-law. You can go read it on your own. Chapter 38. And they have a son. And his name is Perez. Perez. Now, walk with me, friends. From Adam. Who's next in our genealogy? Adam. Seth. Enoch. I know you guys are a little rusty from last week, aren't you? Noah. Noah's son who receives the blessing is? Shem. And Shem, by tradition, is what man? Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's great, 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 great grandson? Abraham. And Abraham's son? And Isaac's son? And Jacob becomes? And Israel has 12 sons. And which one receives the blessing? And Judah has a son, and his name is? Perez. We're going to do that about four or five more times tonight. All right? And by the time you're done, you're going to be able to do that with me. Do not sit there with your mouth closed. Try stumble, get frustrated, but do it. And trust me, you'll be able to stand up here like a two-year-old or a four-year-old and be able to recite those people. Okay? This is our family genealogy. It is so important that we know it. It is so important. All right. Chapter 49, verse 33. When Jacob finished charging his sons, right? this is right after all of the blessings, When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. In chapter 50, verse 22. Chapter 50, verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the... Who's Ephraim? His son. The third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh. Who was his son? Manasseh, right? And so this is his grandson. Were born upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath of the sons of Israel, saying, God will visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1 verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All of the offspring of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt and then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the descendants of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Okay? They received that covenant blessing of God which always makes the people of God fruitful and multiply. You want to know why contraception is such an evil? It is an affront 
to the gift of God's own life in whose image and likeness we are made. Those who are in the covenant family of God have one job upon this earth, and that is to carry on God's gift of life which He gave us. Now, you know the story of Exodus. And I told you last week, we're not going to rest where things where you already know, where you're going to get comfortable and say, I've already heard that story. I don't want to do that with you. Now, we're also going to change gears a little bit in the book of Exodus, and you're not going to know why yet. But we're going to change gears from the genealogies to a time frame so that we kind of understand what's going on. This enters us into the most difficult and driest portion of our three weeks together. I am going to try to get through it in the next 15 minutes and we will take a break. But I ask you to stay with me. It's so important because we know the story of Exodus. But how many of you know how the story of Exodus and the book of Leviticus fit together? How many of you know how the story of Exodus and the book of Numbers fits together? It's extremely important, and I'm going to try to give you the tools to understand that, because if you made it this far, if you made it through the genealogies, you got to the book of Exodus, which is pretty interesting, right? And maybe you made it through Exodus, but then what do you hit? Leviticus. Oh no. Leviticus will kill anyone who's sane. Has anyone in this room ever read Leviticus before? A few of you have. I don't recommend it. Okay, and I'm going to tell you why I don't recommend it. Okay, I do recommend it, but not really. You've got to understand it in its context. And so we're going to look at it in its context instead of going through it. Because we'll all die. Okay, we started our study last week of the book of Genesis with a couple of themes. We've got to look at the book of Exodus with a couple of themes. First of all, what's the book of Exodus about? The Exodus, the exit, right? The going out of Egypt. They all now went there with their brothers and so forth. They all ended up in Egypt. But that's not where they're supposed to be living. They're supposed to be living in paradise, in the covenant family of God. they got to get back there. And so the story of Exodus is the story of going back, getting out of Egypt. All right? A couple themes you got to know. Who's the great hero of our story? Moses. They had ten plagues. You know the story of the ten plagues, don't you? Each of the plagues was a plague against one of the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians were pantheists. They worshipped basically everything. And so God sent Moses to strike it. Each one of these things, they worshipped the god Hopi, the god of the frogs. So what did God do? He sent so many frogs upon the earth that they literally had to step on them. So much for the gods of the pantheists. Then what happened to the frogs? They died. And the stench of the frogs was so bad they had to get rid of them. So much for the gods of the Egyptians. They also worshipped the sun god. So what did God do? He sent a plague so that the sun was literally blocked out and it was dark all upon the land of Egypt. Huh? They also worshipped the calf god, the god Apis. It was the worship of the firstborn of Egypt. What was the, how did they worship the god Apis, the calf god? Kids, cover your ears. Through an orgy. And so the firstborn of Egypt would get together and they would worship the god Apis like this. Horrible, horrible. And they would worship the calf god and this is how they did it. 
We're going to come back to that point. But those are your major themes you've got to know about. In chapter 12, verse 1 of Exodus, you know the intervening stories. If you don't, friends, you've got to start reading. If any point tonight you say, I don't know that story, but I, I want to know more about it, write down that chapter. You go home and read it. Okay? In chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they shall take every man a lamb according to their fathers. Okay, and so forth. Okay? What's going to go on in chapter 12? The story of the Passover. This is going to be the first year and the first month of the people of Israel. They will count now from chapter 12 on. And we're going to keep track of their story based upon the time period. In chapter 19, in the intervening chapters, you have the story of the sacrifice of the firstborn, the Passover. And all the firstborn of Egypt are slaughtered in the middle of the night. And finally, Pharaoh says, Get out of here. Get out of here. And they pack up their stuff and they take with them hordes of gold and they get out of Egypt and they start making their way to what great place? Mount Sinai. And you know the intervening chapters. We don't need to talk about the crossing of the Red Sea, do we? No. And so they come to Mount Sinai in chapter 19. Is it very important? Chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, how long did it take them from chapter 12 and that Passover to get to Sinai? Three months. Three months. You know the story. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's gone for a long time. And in chapter 32... You guys pretty much know the story, huh? He goes up, he sees God, he receives the commandments, he comes down, and God says, you better get down, and Moses hears, what does he hear going on in the camp? He hears a party going on. Chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold which are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold which were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molten calf. Ah. A calf to worship. And what kind of people worship the calf? Ah, but what people among the Egyptians? The firstborn. Ah. Now, friends, how important is our story? How important are the firstborn? Ah, they are to be the kings and the priests, aren't they? And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be the feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. You remember how I told you how they worshipped the god Apis, right? 
And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. <laughs> Biblical playing. Okay? They weren't going on the swing set. They rose up to play. Now, in chapter 32, verse 21, is the greatest magic trick in all of history. I love to read this. It's, it's a pretty lame excuse, but it's funny. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, not, Let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Let any who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and there came out a calf. <laughs> right, right. Now, this is an extremely important, probably the most important change of events probably since the story of the flood, and probably from here, maybe even all the way up to the coming of Christ. Okay, maybe you could argue for the Babylonian exile, but this is more important than that. Because at this moment, they set up a god, the calf god, and worshipped him. And we know what kind of people worship the calf god. And we also know what the role of the firstborn is supposed to be, don't we? All right, go back to verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to their shame among the enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. He drew a line, right? Come to me if you're on the Lord's side. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man a sword on his side and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And Moses said, today you have ordained yourselves for the service, huh? for the worship of the Lord. Why did the Levites join Moses at this point? Does anyone know? Yeah, Moses was a Levite. So he drew the line and said, who's with me? And his family joined him. And 3,000 men fell that day. And on that day, Moses says to the Levites, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord. Who is ordained for the service of the Lord? And they are the firstborn. The firstborn of Israel are to be the priest kings of Israel. And today, at the moment of the golden calf, the firstborn have committed a sin, a sin of false worship. Instead of leading their people in the praise of Yahweh, they have worshipped a false god and traded their right as firstborns of Israel and given it up and given it over to those who joined Moses, and today they have ordained themselves for the service of the Lord. And you're saying to me, I don't know about this, Deacon Sabbath, you know, stay with me. Stay with me. 
It's extremely important. See, yes, go ahead. What did Aaron do with all of this? I mean, when they slayed everybody, did they kill him too? Not who joined Moses? The, his family. Yeah, he was responsible. Yes, this is a very important point. We talked about it last time. God stands at the door and knocks and asks us for conversion. And we will see today, if we ever get through it, all of the stories of conversion. That when somebody comes to the Lord, it doesn't matter how bad their life was, thanks be to God, He will forgive them. And when Moses said, who will stand with me? It appears as though Aaron confessed his sin and joined his family, thank God, and his life was spared. Keep your hand in Exodus and flip to Numbers chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to come back to this text a little later, but I'm flipping ahead to give a little insight into what happened right here. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, which is when we're talking about the golden calf taking place, right? These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people instead of every firstborn that opens the womb of the people of Israel. Instead of every firstborn that opens the womb. And why? Because of the sin of the golden calf. This is fundamentally important because as Christians... We no longer hold to a Levitical priesthood. We hold to the firstborn priesthood of Jesus Christ in whom every priest participates. As a participant in the priesthood of Christ, Christ came to give us back, to restore to us the plan which God had in the beginning. No longer for a particular tribe anymore. It's for all those who are entered into Christ. That's why there is such a thing as a royal priesthood. Each one of us on the day of our baptism was ordained for the service of the Lord through our participation in Christ our high priest. All right, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I got to stop there. But I will tell you this, that at this moment, when the Levites take over for the worship of Israel, it's here that the book of Leviticus fits into the story. And when you read the book of Leviticus, all those people that are crazy among us that read it, what's inside it? Laws about? About worship. And when my children disobey me, what do I give them? No, I don't make them read Leviticus. I don't make them read Leviticus. But I do give them rules, don't I, Luciano? Huh? You can't go here anymore. Or, I don't know what the rules are. My kids never disobey. They're perfect. But, but we give them rules, don't we? If you're going to be disobedient, we'll have to give you more rules. If you disobey those, we'll give you more rules. If you don't come home when you're supposed to, you can't have the car keys anymore. So God gives them a whole bunch of rules in the book of Leviticus. It's meant for the Levitical priest to read. It's like the priest. I was, I was celebrating liturgy today with the bishop, and I had to read you all this stuff to try to figure out what I was supposed to do. It would have driven all of you insane. I love it. Okay, you've got to incense this many times here and this many times here, and you've got to go there and there, and by the time the liturgy is done, you're absolutely exhausted. But that's what I was ordained to do. 
So if the book of Leviticus bothers you or you can't get through it, that's because it wasn't written for you to read. It's the way of worship for the Levitical priests. Now, I'm not saying don't read it. It's good to read it. Yes, become familiar with it. However, can you skip it in the storyline? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you go to Mass, you don't go read every part that the priest is supposed to read, do you? No. But the priest has got tons of stuff. He's got to do everything just right. But you don't know that, but he does. All right? So the book of Leviticus fits into the story here in Exodus. Okay. Now, chapter 40. We're at the end of the book of Exodus. All right? You know the story of Exodus because all it is is going from Egypt to Mount Sinai and the story of what takes place at Mount Sinai. And if you don't know that story, that's where you read it. Now, chapter 40, verse 1, fast. The Lord said to Moses, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle. What first day of what first month? Yeah, it's been how long? It's been one year. Now they've been at Sinai all this time. Now we've gone to a full year from Passover, three months to Sinai, and now the rest of that year is spent at Sinai, and at the end of the book of Exodus, we are at the second year, first month. Bingo. Now, what happens? The Lord said to Moses, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, the place where the Levites are going to do the worship. And chapter 40 is all of the blessings of the objects in the tent. Okay, and it comes all the way to verse 33. So Moses, or so he erected the court round the tabernacle on the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right, keep your hand in chapter 40. Skip the book of Leviticus and go to the book of Numbers. What's the book of Numbers about? It's a census numbering of the people. Why do you think that it's important to number the people now? Well, you just slaughtered a bunch of them. 3,000 people died. Can you imagine 3,000 people laying dead? And trust me, they didn't walk out of Egypt with a bunch of shovels in their hand. Look at chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year. Do you see that? The first day of the second month of the second year. Now we're at second month. And I'm going to simply tell you, in the first few chapters of the book of Numbers, I'm going to tell you what's going on. Just look at the chapters with me very quickly. In chapter 1, they take a census of the people, huh? The numbering of the people. In chapter 2, there's an instruction of how they are to encamp around the tent of meeting. It's very interesting. The tent of meeting is to be in the center of the camp, and they are supposed to camp like this, according to their tribes. Making the sign of? Thank you. All right. Chapter 3, verse 1. We already read it. Chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 11, didn't we? Today the Levites have ordained themselves, in verse 11, for the service of the Lord instead of the firstborn. Good. In chapter 5 and 6, we get two laws about who can be in the camp and who can't be in the camp. 
In chapter 5 and 6, it's very important. It tells why people can't be in the camp. And one of the rules, first of all, dead people can't be in the camp. Right? What just happened in our story? A bunch of people died. you got to get them out of the camp. There's another part of the story that just happened, and that is the people of God went and worshipped a false god. And in the tradition of Israel, in the scriptures, the people of Israel are always referred to as the bride of God. And when they walk away from their Lord, they are called a harlot. And in chapter 5 and 6, there are two laws. No dead people and no adulterers are to be in the camp. Actually, adulteresses talking about women in chapter 6. My point is that in chapter 5 and 6, the laws are given because of what took place at Mount Sinai. So important to our storyline. The men actually did just become adulteresses, didn't they? The men are the ones that committed this sin by becoming adulteresses to their God, their Lord, their husband. Does that make sense? All right. Let's not let modernism creep into this room. Yes, they're heretics for worshiping a false god. However, the real sin is that the people that were being prepared to be God's bride. That's why St. Paul talks about the church as the bride of God. Okay, They're prepared to be God's bride, and they go and they yoke themselves to another lord. And so they become adulteresses. Okay, Too much to get into right now. And I know I'm out of time, but i got to get through numbers because I only have a few more references I have to make before we get back to the storyline. Look at chapter 7. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it, now you went back to Exodus chapter 40, didn't you? On the day when Moses finished, look at verse 33. Halfway through verse 33, so Moses finished the work. You see that? Numbers chapter 7 and Exodus chapter 40 go hand in hand. Do you see that? All right. I'm back at Numbers now, chapter 7. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, anointed and consecrated with all its furnishings. In chapter 7, we now get the 12 tribes of Israel giving their offerings and giving up their firstborn priesthood. They trade their goods for their priesthood. And you'll see that in verse 12. You'll see the first day, verse 18, the second day, verse 24, the third day. This goes on for 12 days of them giving their offerings. They're still at Mount Sinai. Look at Numbers chapter 8, and we'll finish with this point. Chapter 8, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them, and thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water and expiation upon them. And look at verse 14. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in to do the service of the tent of meeting, when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel, instead of all that open the womb, the firstborn of the people of Israel, I have taken them myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both man and of beast. On the day that I slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself, and I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. Are you guys okay with that? All right, chapter 9, verse 1, and then we'll take our break. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai on the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Verse 15, 
On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like an appearance of fire until the morning. That is a virtually an exact quote of chapter 40 of Exodus. Chapter 40, verse 33. Okay? Now look at chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, the second year since when? Since the first Passover, right? In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle of testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Padan. It will take them, and it is an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the Holy Land. 11 days they will journey, and we'll take our break for no more than two minutes. Oh, that was, that was dry, I know, but it was only 20 minutes of dry. And let me tell you how important that is, because now you know that you can go from Exodus chapter 40 to Numbers chapter 9 verse 15, mirrors, mirrors Exodus chapter 40 verse 33. So you could even, I hate to say this on recording, but you could even skip all of that in, in between, because... You don't want to get bogged down. You don't want to get lost in Leviticus. And you don't want to get lost in the census and numbers. You want to know where to pick that story up. And that's why it's so important to know that they end up in Egypt. And then their counting begins at Passover. And from Passover to now the second Passover, they hold right at the base of Mount Sinai. And you can read about that second Passover in those first few chapters of Numbers. There's also, for all you people that love Leviticus and want to drive yourselves insane, I ask you, why did they wait until the second month and the 20th day to leave Sinai? Why did they wait that long? There's an answer. Instead of the first month, right after Passover, they could have left. But they didn't. They had to wait to the second month and to the 20th day. You can find that out by reading very carefully in the book of Numbers. I said that it takes how many days from Sinai to the Holy Land? Eleven days. And that's given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2. Don't look at it now. We'll get to it later. Eleven days. How long does it take them? Forty years. And so now we get to make our way from Sinai to the Holy Land to quickly go through the 40 years in the wilderness and make our way back to paradise, back to the Holy Land to take it back for the people of God who will receive it as an inheritance. If some of you are saying, I don't understand, go back and listen to our talk the first time. Now, in Numbers chapter 13, the story picks up again. And if you thought Sinai was fun or some of the stories in Genesis were fun, oh, Numbers chapter 13, it doesn't get any better. I was one time in a Bible study in a, um, you know these Protestants that want to become Jews but don't want to give up Christ? Messianic Jews. I don't call them Messianic Jews because they're not Jews. They're Christians who became Protestant and then missed the rules. So they went back and tried to get some rules back. Well, anyways, I was in a Bible study trying to take it over. And the guy that was running it, the guy who was running it, I walk in the Bible study. The first time I walked into this thing and he opens to Numbers chapter 13. I almost died. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And he says, you know, there's really not much to say here. I said, whoa, I put up my hands. Do you mind if I just said a couple things? So, anyways, he didn't throw me out of the class, but um, I hope I did some good for them. 
Anyways, chapter 13, verse 12. They get to the Holy Land. They make their way, the journey, which is to take 11 days. They get on the edge of paradise. And the Lord said to Moses, chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I give to the people of Israel. And from each tribe of their fathers, you shall take a man, everyone a leader among them. So 12 guys are going to go in and spy out the land to figure out how they're going to conquer it. There's two important people. In verse 5, we learn of Caleb from the tribe of Judah. And Joshua, exactly. So Caleb and Joshua are two key people in this first couple of verses in chapter 13. Caleb and Joshua. They go into the land, and Moses tells them in verse 20, tell us whether the land is rich or poor and whether there's wood or not. Be of good courage and bring back some of the fruit of the land. And the time of the season was for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land. And in verse 23, And they came to the valley of Eshcol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. Huh? Why would there all of a sudden in our story be revealed this fruit which is beyond our imagination? Why? Where have they just come back to? The promised land. The Garden of Eden. Okay? A single cluster of grapes and they carried on a pole between the two of them. And they brought also some pomegranates and figs. What is the one fruit we know is in paradise? Figs. And verse 25, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to the whole congregation. Verse 27, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Yet the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Nephilim. We won't get into that. but And they say, they're too big. There's, there's huge people in there. And verse 30, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought the people of Israel an evil report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Go back up to verse 25 to see how long they spied out the land for. 40 days, exactly. Now, chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we died in this wilderness. Why does the Lord bring us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Oh, And they said to one another, let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Harris fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation. And Caleb and Joshua come back and say, don't do this. We can go in and we can conquer it. For the Lord is with us. And verse 10, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs which I have wrought among them? I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses goes and says, Oh God, don't. No, don't do it. Don't do it. And Moses intercedes for the people. Verse 26. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long shall this wicked congregation murmur against me? Now verse 30. Not one of them shall come into the land which I swore that I would make you dwell, except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun, the only two that had faith. But your little ones whom you said would become prey I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days for every day a year you shall bear your iniquity for forty years." Forty years now they will spend in the wilderness. Between chapter 14 and chapter 22 of the book of Numbers is the story of their 40 years in the wilderness. Not too long of an accounting, right? A few battles, a few wars, and so forth, a few miracles. And right there in those intervening chapters from Numbers 15 to chapter 22, and in chapter 22, verse 1, Then the people of Israel set out and encamped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And you know what's going to happen in Jericho, don't you? They're encamped now just on the edge of paradise. And they've spent all of this time making their way. All of that generation has now passed away. And the Jordan River coming down, they're encamped in Moab. Here's Jericho. How many of you have been to Jericho before? You can literally see the Jordan River. And from Moab, they can see the Jordan River. And their whole story right now tells about all the people, all the Canaanites that are dwelling in the land. You remember, do they have a right to the land? No, they do not. It is the people of Israel who are the rightful inheritors of that land. And if you don't understand, go back and listen last week. And you hear the story of them coming and standing on the mountains and looking at this huge tribe that's gathering And they start freaking out because they know what's going to happen to them. They know they're going to be conquered. They've seen the miracles and the workings of God. The people of the land have heard about the Israelites and how God is with them. And yet they stand up and fight them anyways. Chapter 25, verse 1 is the next major problem that we face, which will then again, just like the book of Leviticus, causes problems when we're reading the Bible. And so you've got to know about this. While Israel dwelt in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. I don't think at this point I need to tell you what this means anymore. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. After 40 years, they're about to take the land. And what do they do? They go back and do the same thing that they did at Sinai. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, that's the god of the uh, Moabites, 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. And there's a little story there that you can read. We're going to come all the way up to verse 9. All of a sudden what happens is, he says, hang them, hang the people that committed this crime, and immediately a plague breaks out upon the people. And you can read about that plague right there, but look at verse 9. Nevertheless, those that died by the plague were 24,000. 24,000 people in the plains of Moab die. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation. Why do they have to take a census? Thank you. You guys see the importance of these details. That if you don't catch these details, you're not going to catch the bigger story. Okay. In the next few chapters, after the people are numbered, I want you to look at the content of your text. And you're going to, in your Bibles, have little headings that are not original text, but kind of tell you what's going on in the storyline. You'll see offerings at the appointed feasts, offerings at the appointed feasts, vengeance on the Midians, the division of the booty. There's all sorts of rules and laws that are suddenly given. Why would God give rules and laws? Because the people were disobedient again. And it's here at this point that the book of Deuteronomy comes into the story. Deuteronomy means the second law. Huh? Deutero. Huh? Or deuce or duo, right? Two. The second law is given. Keep your hand in numbers. Turn to the next book, Deuteronomy chapter 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel beyond the Jordan, the wilderness in Arabah, over against Suf. Verse 5 when they were beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain the law. Right? Because what do I do with my kids? You didn't understand? Let me explain it to you again. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. And you'll see in Deuteronomy now, in the next few chapters, what's given again. The Ten Commandments are given again to remind the people of what they're not supposed to do and what they are supposed to do. So Deuteronomy fits into here right in the story of the sin of Baal of Peor, of the Moabites. Right as they're in the edge of the Jordan and this plague wipes out 24,000. They take a census, okay? In Numbers chapter 27, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the people. And when you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was gathered because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of sin. Moses then is taken to the Lord. He dies. And in verse 18, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands upon him. Joshua will now become the new Moses. And it will be Joshua who will lead the people of God across the Jordan and into the Holy Land. Okay, now go to the book of Deuteronomy now with me. Chapters 1 through 5 recounts the story of the people's journey from Egypt all the way to today. All the way to the plains of Moab. 
The whole story is recounted in a very short order from chapter 1 to chapter 5. If you want to go and review it, that's a great review of where they camped and what they did. Okay? Chapters 5 through 10 are all the new laws that are given. Look at the headings with me. Deuteronomy chapter 5, you get what? The Ten Commandments. And more laws and more laws all the way through chapter 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, you can scan that. You'll see through all the book of Deuteronomy, two important kinds of laws given. More laws about worship. Because what did they do in the plains of Moab? They worshipped the false gods. And how did they do it? Again, the way they did before. Okay? There's laws about chastity. There's more laws about the adulterers. And there's also laws about how to do right worship. Okay? And in chapter 27, the story picks up again. So you know now that you can, in some ways, skip. No, I don't hate to say skip, but you know what I mean. To get the storyline, we can now come all the way to 27, and you know the story. They've made their way the 40 years in the desert. They come in and camp at Jericho. They had a sin of the Moabites. The book of Deuteronomy now fits into the story there. A second law, a reminder to the people, and now... God is going to bring them into the promised land. And in chapter 27, the story picks up and they renew the covenant. And you can look at your Bibles. In chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, Keep all of the commandments which I command you this day. And I want you to scan down all the way to verse 15. And you'll see all the warnings given. Cursed be the man who does this. Verse 16. Cursed be the man who does this. Do you see that? All the way down. 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, verse 23. Do not do this. Don't do that or this is going to happen. Don't touch the oven or you're going to burn your hand. And then chapter 28, verse 3. Blessed shall you be, however, if you do this. And go scan Those verses now, verse 4, blessed shall the fruit of your body. Verse 5, blessed shall the basket. Verse 6, blessed shall you be. Do you see that? God's making a covenant with them, telling them again how to live when they enter into this land which God is going to give them. And it's all summed up there in chapter 30, verse 1 through 3, and then we'll skip some verses. And when all these things Come upon you the blessings and the curses which I have set before you. Chapter 30, verse 1. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you this day with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes. Huh? Return to me and life will be okay. Look at verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. What does that sound like? The Garden of Eden. huh? He offers us these two ways. To be members of the sons of the devil or the members of the household of God. I set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you might live. Choose life that you might live. Okay. In chapter 31, verse 1, 
So Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old this day, and I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you, and you will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head. Now, my dear friends, how nice is this? Go over and kill them all. Why would God say that? I have children. Put yourself in my shoes. If I were to go home tonight, my kids are sleeping in the bed, and I were to walk into my front door, and there was a man there who confronted me, I not only have a right but an obligation to protect my family and kill that man on the spot. He is threatening the life of my family. What is rightfully and honorably ours. And when Israel walks back into their home, into Canaan, into the Holy Land, into the Promised Land, when Israel walks back into their home, and men stand up with a sword, they will be cut down to protect what is rightfully theirs. What has been stolen from them. I told you at the beginning, the battle would be bloody. And when man stands on the side of the devil, he will die because he has separated himself from the life of God. Not because God wants to kill him. Not because God wants to let him die. No. He wants him to live. And we will see a number of people who see the working of God and convert on the spot and confess the truth. And they will be brought in to become important members of the household of God. Chapter 34, verse 5. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. Chapter 1 of Joshua, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land which I am giving you. Verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I give it to you, as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness of Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates all of the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. It's a huge, huge area. And the whole story of the book of Joshua, all the way up to the story of King David, they will be fighting for that land. And every time they're obedient to God, they will win. And every time they're disobedient, they will lose the battle. It will take them many, many, many years to take the land which God had prepared for them. Alright, look at chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land. Right? Remember, Joshua had been the one that viewed the land before. Now he sends two spies. Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab. Rahab is going to be an icon an icon of the people of God who have spent their life away from their Lord and Master, who have become harlots and now are returning to their Savior. And you know the story of Rahab. They go into Jericho. Rahab says, come into my house. And she hides them. Why? 
Do you think the people of Jericho knew what was about to go on? You've got an entire encampment of people that have just marched across for 40 years, crisscrossed the desert in front of them, and wiped out every type of people that put up a fight against them. The people of Jericho were scared, and they knew what was going on, and Rahab knew it too. And when the two spies came, she said, I know whose side I'm going to be on. And she hid them and protected them. You know the story. Joshua ends up coming. They hold Passover again. Now, right on the edge of paradise, chapter 4, verse 19, they hold Passover. But I want you to look with me at chapter 5, verse 10. Do you remember when Jacob was returning back to the promised land after his exile and he meets his brother? Remember who's standing there? The angel, right? As he's making his way back. And you remember God placed an angel to guard the way into paradise. Watch this in chapter 5, verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at evening in the plains of Jericho. So they just come across the Jordan. They encamp for the first night and they hold Passover. And on the morrow after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased. Why did the manna cease? Because a manna was a prefigurement of the fruit of paradise. And the manna was a prefigurement of the fruit of paradise. And the fruit of paradise is a prefigurement of what food that God feeds us? The Eucharist. And the Eucharist itself is a prefigurement of the day when we will behold God face to face and have a direct communion with Him. No longer under the shadow, under the veil of bread and wine. Verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Do you remember what the angel held? A sword. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you with us or for our adversaries? And he says, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, What does my Lord bid his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And Joshua did so. In chapter 7, verse 1, we meet the first problem as they enter into the land. You know the story of Jericho, right? We don't need to read about it. They rock the city. One person is saved. Who is it? Rahab. We're going to find out more about Rahab in a few moments because she's going to become critical to the story. You want to talk about how God treats women and how the church treats women? huh? Not like the world tells us. No. God treats women as they should be treated. And Rahab is a prime example of that. A convert. One who comes to faith in the Lord. And she becomes critical to the story. Without Rahab, without Rahab, we would not have Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things of Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Nabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things from Jericho, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people in Israel. All right? You want to say, no! No, don't do it! I mean, can you imagine? Jericho falls. Wouldn't you have just completely converted? I mean, if you're the man of Israel and you're still thinking you're going to go worship pagan gods, I think I'd change at that moment. 
But no, they go into Jericho and he takes some of the pagan gods and takes it into the camp of Israel. And this is going to be our story now from here all the way to the Babylonian exile, the struggle between God telling the people to be faithful to him and the people being drawn in to the entrapment and snare of the devil. This is why it's so fundamental that there's an absolute division between the people of God and those who are not. Through chapter 24 of Joshua, we have the whole story of them coming in and conquering the land and that struggle taking place. In chapter 24 of Joshua, we have a renewal of the covenant. Look at verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and heads and the judges and the officers of Israel and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord. Okay? And he says, look, here's the deal. Here's what God asks of you. Do you want to be faithful or not? And the people say yes. And so in chapter 24, we get a renewal of the covenant. Look at chapter 24, verse 29. And after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of Gaash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works which the Lord did for Israel. And in Judges chapter 1, look guys, never stop in the middle of chapters, uh, chapter breaks. They're a late addition to the text anyways. Never stop because the story continues. The same in between books. Never stop in between the books of the Bible because the story keeps going. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they took it. Finally, they take the capital city. Who's the last king to dwell in Judah that we know of in our story? Melchizedek. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they dwelt in the land of the Canaanites, but they never went up and took the throne city. Finally, they take the throne city back, and now we're going to see the story very shortly of the return of the kings. Okay, Very shortly in our story. But there's some intervening chapters that we have to deal with, and that is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is very simple. Chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the power of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to the judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down to them. So what's going to happen, guys? Blessing or curse? Okay. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Here's the key to the book of Judges right here. Whenever the Lord raised up judges, verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those that afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and behaved worse than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them. 
That's the story of the book of Judges. One judge after another, 13 judges in all. They rise up, the people convert, they come back to the Lord, they start conquering the land again, and then the judge dies, and they fall away, and then God brings the judge back. What are some of the judges' names? Do you remember? Deborah, who else? Gideon, who else? Samson, yeah, you guys know the story of Samson probably pretty well. That's all right there in the book of Judges for you. And it's during this time of the story of the Judges that the next book, hold your hand in Judges and turn to your next book. The story of of Ruth. She's a beautiful, beautiful story. Okay, how many of you know the story of Ruth? How many of you have ever read the story of Ruth? All right, if you have not, I want you to look how long it is. Go home tonight and read the story of Ruth. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. And look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. So notice, guys, where did the book of Leviticus fit in? It fit in there right there at the sin of the golden calf, didn't it? Where did the book of Deuteronomy fit in? Right there at the end of the book of Numbers in the plains of Moab, remember? Where does the book of Ruth fit in? Right there in the story of the judges. You have to be able to pay attention to the time frame and the context so you know what's going on. Okay? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. You know the story, don't you? They go out, there's a famine in the land, and they go out and they live among the Moabites. Again, you want to talk about how the Lord treats women and how He treats those that are outside of the family? He knocks on the door and calls them home constantly being merciful. They go and they live among the Moabites. And Naomi's two sons marry two Moabite women. And what happens? The two sons die and Naomi's husband also dies in the land of Moab. Naomi is distraught. And she says, I'm returning to my family. I'm returning to my home. I'm going to go back. You can imagine what her feeling was. And one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, who was faithful, said, You are my mother. Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She returns in faith with Naomi back to their home back to the Holy Land, to the tribe of Judah. Do you think that's important? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She returns back and she ends up being married to her next of kin of the tribe of Judah. And his name is Boaz. Boaz. Just turn your page, one page. The last chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid upon her bosom and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. That's her grandchild, right? 
A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now I got to connect two things for you because the next few verses are critical. You remember how important the genealogies were, don't you? From Adam to Seth. From Seth to Enoch. From Enoch to Noah. From Noah to Shem, who, who we know as Melchizedek. From Shem to Abraham. Abraham, Isaac. Isaac, Jacob, who became Israel. And Israel had how many sons? And which one received the blessing? Judah. And Judah had a son. And what was his name? Perez. Verse 18 of the book of Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron of Ram. Ram of Abinadab. Abinadab of Nashon. Nashon of Salmon. Salmon of Boaz. Boaz of Obed. And Obed of Jesse. And Jesse of King David. Why is it that we stopped the genealogy when the 12 sons of Israel went to Egypt. And now, only now, when they come back to the Holy Land, they finally have conquered Jerusalem. Why is it now that we get the genealogy? We didn't know who the kings were. All the way from Perez, we haven't heard, have we? We know Moses was leading the people. Where did the kings go? If you were a king and your people were in slavery and you stood up and said, I'm the king, what do you think they'd do to you? They'd kill you. The kings of Israel go into hiding in Egypt. And it's only now when they come back to the promised land that they can stand up and we can find out who the next king of Israel is going to be. And you get it, the critical genealogy there. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Abinadab, Abinadab of Nation. I'm not going to have you turn to the New Testament yet, but it's in the New Testament that we find out that Solomon, look at Solomon, verse 21, and Nation was the father of Solomon. Solomon married Rahab, the harlot, and their son was Boaz. And Boaz married the Moabite. And their son was Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. Part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, we've got eight minutes to go. Okay? And we're going to get through about four more books. (laughs) Okay. Go back to Judges now. It's a lot of information, isn't it? Okay, I know it's feeling like you're riding this bike and the wheels are starting to come off. Don't worry, I'm going to keep them on for you. But you've got to trust me and hold on to my hand and we're going to get through this. You're going to have to do some homework over the week, but you'll get through it. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, remember we're in the time of the judges, right? And when the judges die, when the leaders die, what happens? The people sin. In those days there was no king in Israel... Chapter 18 tells a very horrific story about sin. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, what do you think is going to happen, guys? Sin. Look at chapter 21, verse 25. In those days 
when there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Not a good idea. Now, skip Ruth then. And our next book is 1 Samuel. And the stories that we read in 1 Samuel are about the last judge of Israel named Samuel. And it's here in the book of Samuel that we will bridge the story from the judges to the kings. And you have that beautiful story right there at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the story of Hannah. Some of you attended my program that we did on the visitation. You want to know how important Hannah is to the story? Go back and listen to that because it's Mary who was meditating upon the story of Hannah when the angel appeared to her. It's Hannah that Mary was meditating upon and was like her patron saint. We know the story. Hannah was what? Barren. And when a woman's barren in the, in the Bible, look out. Her husband goes up to the temple there in the first chapter of 1 Samuel and he has two wives. Not a good idea, but he has two wives. He gives to his wife that's having children all the offerings and to Hannah just a little bit. And Hannah goes, it's a beautiful story. She's in the temple and she's weeping or in the tent of meeting and she's weeping. And she says, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. And sure enough, shortly after that prayer, Hannah becomes pregnant with her son Samuel. And Samuel is then given back to the Lord and he lives in the tent of meeting and sleeps next to the Ark of the Covenant. If that sounds interesting to you, right there in the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel, all through chapter 8. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we pick up the story again. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Right? You understand what that means, right? What did Abraham do? He walked with the Lord. What did Adam do? He hid from God. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like all the other nations. Was this a good request or not, friends? Why not? Look at their request. I want it right from their request. What's wrong? Yeah. They didn't say make us a king like God, did they? Make us a king like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel goes back to the people and says, guys, don't do it. Please don't do this. He's pleading with them. And look at chapter 8, verse 19. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words that the people repeated them in their ears, and the Lord said to Samuel, hearken to their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. 
And there was a man in Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of so-and-so, a Benjamite. Where should they have chosen a king from? A Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. Okay? And a handsome young man was he. Sound familiar? A handsome boy, could he get up there and tell it like it was and debate the other guys so well and he looked so good? Huh? Sound familiar, my friends? And they made him a king. And guess what he did when they came to anoint him king? Saul hid himself in the luggage that the people had brought because he was scared. Huh? They elected a scaredy cat who would not lead the people. And his name was Saul. And he was made king over the people right there in the beginning of 1 Samuel. Okay? He commits two major sins in chapter 10 in verse 1 and verse 17. He sacrifices to God. He offers sacrifice. Who's supposed to offer the sacrifices? Yeah, the priests. And... He goes to war without the blessing of Samuel. He ends up being disinherited. Chapter 15, verse 7, he commits a very bad sin. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people of the edge of the sword. What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to kill them all. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen. What do you think you're going to do when you go capture a king alive? You're going to treat him well? No, you're not going to treat him well. He's a trophy in your kingdom. And you can look back if you're taking notes at Judges chapter 1, verse 6 to find out what happens to guys like this. They become animals at the other king's table. And Saul ends up being disinherited for his sins. Look at chapter 15 and chapter 16. Okay? We made some good headway, didn't we? We went all the way from Genesis to 1 Samuel. I am awfully proud. Okay, look at chapter 15, verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gilbeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And what tribe is Jesse from? Judah. And I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Okay, what does he do? He goes to the house of Jesse. He calls all the sons, right? Come out. Lead them all in front of Samuel. And Samuel says, no, that one's not going to do. No, that one's not going to work. No, that one's not going to work. Then verse 10, And Jesse made the seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, Well, yeah. I mean, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent him and brought him in. 
Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Who was the first king of Israel? God was the first king of Israel. Who was the second king? Adam was the second king. Who was the third king? Seth. Seth had a great, 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 great grandson, and his name was? And Enoch walked with God, and God took him, and he was not. And Enoch had a great, great grandson, and his name was? At the time of the? And Noah had how many sons? And their firstborn son who received the blessing's name was? Shem. And Shem had a great, 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 great grandson, and his name was? Abraham. And Abraham had a son, and his name was? Isaac. And Isaac had a son, and his name was? And Jacob's name was changed to? Israel. And Israel had twelve sons. Which one received the blessing? Judah at the time of the exile to Egypt. Egypt. The people of God go to Egypt and the kings go undercover. And God raises up Moses and brings the people back to Sinai in the 40 years in the desert. They sin at Sinai with the golden calf and they sin again in the plains of Moab. And God raises up Joshua, and Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River into the Holy Land, and they take it back for God. And Judah had a son, and his name was Perez. And Perez had a great-great-grandson, and his name was Boaz, right? And Boaz had a great-great-great-grandson, and his name was Jesse. And Jesse had a son, and his name was King David at the time of the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel in the Holy Land. We have now made our way, my dear friends, halfway through the Bible. And you know every major person, every major event in the story of salvation history. Actually, we've made our way way past halfway in the Bible because from here on out, there is only one story you need to know. We're going to look at a couple more kings, just a couple, because guess what? In the next few chapters, the people of God are going to be disobedient. And when they're disobedient, what happens? They go into exile, don't they? And when the people of God go into exile, what happens to the kings? They go undercover. And we will not see them again until the rising of the great king, the son of justice, Jesus Christ, when they come back and they take the Holy Land for all it's worth, and the King is enthroned upon the cross to reestablish the kingdom of God on earth and to feed His people once again with the fruit of paradise. Next week, we will walk in the first chapters from King David to Babylon and from Babylon back. Next week, We will have to deal with a new people. We talked about the judges, didn't we? Now you know who they are. We've talked about the kings. We need to talk about the prophets because it's now 
when the people fall away from God, that the prophets arise in Israel. And you need to know, just like you need to know the book of Leviticus, where the book of Deuteronomy fit in, where Ruth fits into the story, you need to know where the prophets fit into the story. And I'm going to tell you, so that when you open the prophet Isaiah, you'll know what story it's going on in. When you open Ezekiel, you'll know where it fits into the story. Next week, we're going to do that. And you're going to be able to tell me when we finish our class next week, you're going to be able to tell me every single person from Adam to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. However, I can't do it without you. I can't do it without you. The Institute of Catholic Culture is making an impact. The people are hungry. They don't know the faith. And the only way to get them to know the faith is to start to teach them again. If you're learning things which you never knew before at the Institute of Catholic Culture, then put your money to work for Jesus Christ. Put your lives to work for Jesus Christ. And together... I promise you, God will not fail us. He didn't fail these men, and He won't fail us. But I need you. And together, we will restore the church in her former glory. And we won't be worried about stupid presidential elections, because you know what will happen? We will elect the right people to lead our nations and to lead our world. People that reflect the kingship of Jesus Christ. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, Deacon, you made a reference early on to the tradition in the Greek Orthodox Church that you were reading from. Was that from the Bible or from some other place? No, one of the propers that we sing during Holy Week, during Great Week, and um, it's chanted in the church. So, and my point about that is, again, one of the rules we talked in our series on Dei Verbum, which if you didn't attend, you should have, and I, we did it on purpose before this series because the importance of reading the context of the church. The church is written by certain men who are part of a family. Okay? We've been talking about that family, haven't we? These are the men that are writing. And if you read outside that family, guess what? It's not going to look the same. Just like you go to somebody's house and they're doing weird things. You go over Thanksgiving, they do it differently, don't they? The turkey doesn't taste the same as the way your mother made it. It's the same way in the scriptures. We are part of, the, of a family. The Bible is not made for the coffee table of heretics. It's made for us. Now, is it not evangelical at all? No, it is evangelical. It's evangelical like it was to Rahab. Rahab sees the people of God. She sees the miracles of God. She converts. And then she finds out all the wonderful things that the family has. But we don't throw our pearls before swine. You want to understand the Bible, don't go do Bible study with Protestants. Okay? I'm sorry. I love Protestants. I do. I love them because they're made in the image and likeness of God and they're made to be part of the family of God, the Catholic Church. We invite them to come. Our door's always open for free. But guess what? If you're reading the Bible outside of those who wrote it, you're going to misinterpret it. Say, oh, you're so mean. Oh, I'm being serious about it. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Can you shed some more light on the harlotry and the analogy with heretics? 
Yes. You keep saying heretics, but can we just say with harlots or adulterers, right? Because. No, we're not, we're not talking about when we're talking about men. Because the men, the firstborn of Egypt, were the ones that entered into the sin of the golden calf. All right? Because they were to be the heads of the household, and they should have been offering true worship as the leaders of the family of God. Instead, they went and worshipped a false god and rejected that gift which God gave to them. And so God says, fine, I'm disinheriting you, and I'm going to give what was yours to the Levites. The Levites are a band-aid. And that's why when Jesus Christ comes, he's going to rip that band-aid off. And that's exactly what St. Paul is talking about in Hebrews chapter 7. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews, the epistle of the Hebrews, okay? So, so when you say you don't necessarily mean No. Okay, what is the church called by St. Paul? Yeah, Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, bride. Why? Because God is their Lord, and you could say also by analogy, their husband, okay? When they enter into a relationship with God, they share a common life, and the two become one. Adam and Eve are an image of God himself, who lives a life of communion, and an image of also of God's relationship with us. You understand that? People of God are oftentimes referred to in the feminine, just as the church is referred to as she, Okay? I want to go a little further for those that are interested. I'll just say this just for posterity's sake. In Numbers chapter 5, verse 16, this is the part, remember I said they get two things that people couldn't have in the camp? Right? Dead people and adulteresses. Why? Because of the two problems that took place at the moment of the golden calf. And here it is in chapter 5, verse 16. If you find an adulteress among the camp, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in a vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle. He's to mix it with water and have the woman drink it. It's called the water of judgment. And it says that when she drinks it of the dust of the floor of the tabernacle and the holy water, that she will be judged in the drinking of the water And she will either die at that moment, or she will be vindicated. All right? Now hold on to that. Do you remember what God told the Levites to do after the sin of the golden calf? Just before they slayed all the people? What do you tell them to do with the golden calf? Do you remember? Anybody? Grind it up and do what with it? And mix it with the water and have the people drink it. Now let me ask you, how is it possible for a few men of one tribe to go around and slay 3,000 people unless they're laying there sick and dying already? All right? The waters of judgment. Go back and read the golden calf story and read Numbers chapter 5. I'm going to add one last thing to that. Do you remember the story of the adulterous woman in the Gospel of John? When they accused her of being an adulteress? And they brought her to Jesus. Where was Jesus? He was in the temple. And what did he do? Remember, it was in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles when they were to pour water from the spring of Gihon over the altar until it flowed out of the walls of the temple. Right? It was the day after they were pouring that holy water in the temple. And Jesus said to them, he reached down and he went like this. 
in the dust of the floor of the temple. And he looked them in the eyes because they themselves had become adulteresses and had rejected their God. Do you remember at this crucifixion they said, we have no king but Caesar. You guys look that up. It's a little Bible study for you. Okay? By the way, that's not my own stuff. That's St. Ephraim. I stole it from him. It's good to steal things from St. Ephraim. You read St. Ephraim, he's always right. All right, I'm sorry. That was a little, really long. That's number... That was, was too long. Too long. Too long. Okay. Okay, here you go. <laughs> oh, you didn't have a question? Did someone else have a question? God permitted these deaths. Could some of the rationale be that he knew that these people were not going to have an eternal life and that he used that as the rationale? Yeah. Were they already dead? Were they already dead? Ah, there's a lot of people walking around on this earth that are dead. Just like when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, did they die? They died, my friends. I asked my son that question a minute ago. Where did they die? They died in their hearts. Their love for God died. And the life of God was taken from them. And what was left to them was only a small shadow of what they had had. And they only had what was left to them by the protection of God. By the gift of God. Our life, the fact that we are standing here breathing at this moment, is simply a gift of God. It is not ours by right. When God allows somebody to die because of their sin, it is not because God is killing them. He is simply removing that protection and revealing the reality which is already made present in their life, which is that they have been separated from God and are now living a life dead. As St. Ephraim says, that if Adam and Eve had not been kicked out of paradise, if they had eaten from the tree of life also and lived forever, they would have lived a life for all eternity apart from God. They would have been in hell. And God in His mercy separated them from the tree of life for one reason, so that in obedience, one day, He would be able to bring us back to that place which He had made for us that we might also eat from the tree of life and live forever. And this is why Jesus Christ gives us His life in the Holy Eucharist. If Jesus did not feed us with the Eucharist and say to us, eat of this and you will live forever, He would have not given us back what Adam and Eve lost in the beginning. That's why it boggles my mind that anyone could stay out of the Catholic Church for the reason of the Eucharist. This is the reason why God sent a Savior, so that we might eat again, and through eating in this world, participate in the eternal life of God, like Adam before the fall. Okay? There were a couple internet questions, if you don't mind. There was one from Susan. Is there a direct relation between Joseph leaving his garment in a place where a great sin is brewing, and the young man referenced in Mark 14, 51 through 52? Both events are followed by lying accusations against an innocent man, a sham trial, and an unjust imprisonment, followed by the eventual triumph of the just man. Mark 14? Mark 14, 51 through 52. Okay. The story comes right after Judas kisses our Lord and turns him in, and they arrest him, 
And Jesus says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching you and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. All right. I will only say this. I only say this. Great observation. You want to know how to do Bible study? That's how to do it. That person who's asking that question, Susan, is seeing the scriptures in a broader perspective. She's seeing the picture. And that's what we have to do as Catholics. So that when you look at a point like that, at the very moment, the height of the story of salvation history, our Lord is arrested and is about to be crucified. And all of a sudden, who shows up? A guy who's stripped of his garment and standing naked like Adam? I don't know the answer to her question, but I'll tell you what. That's a great one to meditate upon during Holy Week, isn't it? To go back and read the story of Joseph. To go back and read the story of Adam. Because all of these things are meant as types for us, as St. Paul says. Pointing the way of salvation. And it's only through reading the Bible like that that we're going to start to understand the importance of the stripping of the child at baptism before he's baptized, of clothing them again in the grace of the Holy Spirit in the baptismal robe, which is white, to reflect the grace of God in the robe of glory that Adam wore before the fall. We read our Bibles because it is the greatest story of our life. He has given us this story. We should cherish it, love it, read it. It's written to us to give us instruction on how to get back to paradise to receive again the gift which God has prepared for us. All right, God bless you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.